Thank you, Mike. Well, as you can see, we're in the book of Genesis at the moment. This is our second week uh, in the book of Genesis. And if you were with us last week, uh, we spoke about how Genesis is all about our big questions about life, all about our big, deep questions. Uh, and last week, we particularly asked questions about God and why the world is here. Uh, well, uh, and as we were starting last week, actually, if you, you remember, I got you to ask a question of each other. Uh, what's, your, what's, your biggest, what's your biggest question that you have about the world? I got that to share. I got you to share that with the person next to you. Uh, well, I have another question as we start off today, uh, another deep question. I'm not going to get it to get you to share with the person next to you because it's uh, perhaps a bit harder to come up with an answer, but uh, here's my question for this morning. Is there any meaning in our lives? Nice deep question for Sunday morning. Do our lives mean anything? And if so, why? Where does that meaning come from? There's a book... Uh, it's called Charlotte Gray by Sebastian Fawkes. Sorry, Ali, I don't know if my thing's working. There we go. Thank you. There's a book, it's called uh, Charlotte Gray by Sebastian Fawkes. Uh, it's a book that's set in World War II. Uh, and it's a, it's a really sad book. It's got two sets of characters. Uh, two sets of characters. And it has a sad ending. One of the sets of characters are two lovers. Uh, it kind of follows them and it gets to the end of the book and the two lovers, they step through a door into a church, get married, and have a happily uh, ever after kind of life. Uh, but the other set of characters, two Jewish boys, uh, at the end of the book, they step through a door and into a gas chamber, never to be seen again. And in the middle of the book, there's this famous quote kind of trying to make sense of everything. Why, why does life go so well for some and is so tragic for others? Is there any meaning to any of it? This is what the quote says. No child knows the world he's entering, and at the moment of his birth, he is a stranger to his parents. When he dies many years later, there may be regrets among those left behind that they never knew him better, but he is forgotten almost as soon as he dies because there is no time for others to puzzle out his life. After a few years, he will be referred to once or twice by a grandchild, and then by no one at all. Unknown at the moment of birth, unknown after death, this weight of solitude, a being unknown. A long and happy life, a short and tragic life, but all of us are unknown at the moment of birth, unknown after death. So do our lives even mean anything? Of course, as Christians, we can find meaning because we believe we are made by God and we'll spend eternity with him, but more and more it does seem like our society believes there is no ultimate meaning. It's definitely what our philosophers and famous thinkers say. Uh, Have a look at this quote from Jacques Monod. He's a French philosopher. He says, The universe was not pregnant with life, nor the biosphere with man. Our number came up in the Monte Carlo game. Is that right? Are we just the product of random chance, just lucky numbers? Uh, John Gray is a more modern philosopher. He puts it this way. He says, At the end of the day, human life has no more meaning than the life of slime mould. I mean, it's extreme, but if we are just products of random chance, if there is no God, if humans are just a random byproduct of evolution, here for a short time and then gone and forgotten, well, then he's right, isn't he? Ultimately, no more meaning than the life of slime mould. Or what about uh, Peter Singer, Australian philosopher? He says, those who protest against abortion but dine 
regularly on the bodies of chickens, pigs and calves can hardly claim to have a concern for life as such. Their concern about embryos and fetuses suggests only a biased concern for the lives of the members of our own species. No real reason why we should think we're any more valuable than a chicken or a cow or a pig. Do our lives have any real meaning? You know, this might be what our philosophers think, but uh, this is those who kind of aren't afraid to take some of our society's beliefs and push them to logical endpoints. But I don't think this is really what society thinks, is it? I mean, just think of all the protests over the past couple of years, anti-racism, anti-sexism, anti-discrimination. What does that tell us? It tells us that society thinks actually human life matters, that people matter, that it's not okay to treat people badly, that racism is rightly condemned. We cry out against things like sexual assault because we do seem to think that human life has value, has meaning. And so I wonder, this is the question that's been in my head this week, I wonder if at a deep level our society is deeply confused. Because we've moved away from faith, from a belief in God, our philosophers say that we have no real foundation for why our lives have meaning. And yet we're unhappy because we know that deep down things aren't how they're meant to be. So many protests, there's a deep sense of dissatisfaction about how people are treated. I think our society is crying out for a better answer. Crying out for a better answer. At a deep level, I think we know that life has meaning and yet we don't know sometimes where that meaning comes from. Well, today as we come to the second chapter of Genesis, uh, as I said, if you were with us last week, we talked about who God is, what he's like, what his wonderful creation is like. Uh, Today we're going to turn our focus actually off God a little bit. Sounds like a pretty bad thing to do, doesn't it? Uh, But we're going to turn our focus to humanity, to questions about ourselves, to questions about why God made us and whether our lives have any real meaning. I think society is crying out for a better answer around meaning. But today we find the Bible's answer about why our lives have value, about the meaning of life. Today we'll see that Genesis teaches us two things. It tells us who we are, It tells us why we're here. And having looked at those things, uh, we need to then ask the third question as well. How then should we live? Who we are, why we're here, how then should we live? We're going to start by going back a little bit to uh, part of the passage we looked at last week, part of Genesis chapter 1. Last week we kind of focused on the big picture, God, the world he created. Uh, I think we did mention this briefly, but we didn't get a chance to dig into it. Uh, we're, we're at the end of the days of creation. God's organized the world. If you remember, days one to three, he filled the world. Uh, days one to three, he's organized everything into its proper spheres. And then days four to six, he uh, filled those spheres with things like the sun and the stars and the sea creatures and the birds and the animals. Uh, and then we get to the end of day six and the pattern of Genesis one then breaks. And it breaks because of this special moment, the creation of humanity. Let's have a look at these verses. Then God said, let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Notice the breaking of the pattern, the repetition, the 
Do you know that the word create, I mean, Genesis 1 is all about creation, but do you know that the word create in Genesis chapter 1 is only used five times, and three of those times are right here in this verse, talking about humanity. The closer you look, the clearer it is. So much of Genesis 1 is building towards this moment. It's highlighting this moment, the creation of people. The picture is of humans being almost the peak of God's creation, the cherry on top of everything else. And it's very clear, notice, that uh, humans aren't just another animal. We're created to rule over the fish, rule over the birds, rule over the livestock and the wild animals. Uh, Which, by the way, is not a picture of us being able to mistreat animals and use and abuse them. It's a picture of us giving, given privilege to care for the animals. And we're given God's image as well. There's a lot of debate over exactly what God's image is and exactly what it means. Uh, but what is clear is that humans are in some ways uh, meant to remind the world of God. Creation uh, created to remind and point God's creation to the one who rules. It's like that reminder we get every time we uh, look at the image on the back of a coin. It took me a while to find a coin, actually. I don't often pay with things like cash these days, but uh, there's a picture of the queen. It reminds us of the one who rules, the head of state. Humans are in some ways meant to be like that for our world. All of this stuff, it really does give us this incredible picture of who we are, of who humans are. We're God's special creation, created by him, created to rule and run his world. Now, of course, we don't necessarily do a good job of being who God made us to be. Uh, We know that from Genesis 3 onwards, humans turned against their creator in sin. Humans have, of course, been responsible for some of the greatest evils in the world. Uh, But the Bible's picture is that humans do inherently have great value. We aren't just lucky numbers. We have a deep value given to us by God who specially created us. Peter Singer was one of the uh, one of the philosophers we mentioned before. He's done the logical thinking. He sees no reason really why we should say that human life is any more valuable than the lives of pigs or cows or chickens. Uh, and yet, a sad story. In the late 90s, uh, Peter Singer's mother was dying of Alzheimer's, uh, dementia. And Singer spent hundreds of thousands of dollars caring for her, giving her the best medical treatment, making sure she was well looked after. A few years after she died, uh, an interviewer was actually brave enough to asked Singer the obvious question. He said, you write in your books that humans are no more valuable than chickens or pigs or cows, and yet you've spent all this money caring for your mother. What? Why? You know what Peter Singer said? He said, well, it's different when it's your mother. It's different when it's your mother. Uh, It would be funny if it wasn't such a sad situation, wouldn't it? It seems like deep down, even the hardened atheist maybe still has something inside them that says, There's got to be a better answer. Humans do have great value. In Genesis 1, the Bible's given that answer to us. We are God's special creation. Who are we? We are God's special creation. But that's not all. Genesis tells us who we are. It also tells us point to why we're here. Going to look at the reading that Mike read out for us. We'll spend a bit more time here from Genesis chapter 2. We've had the big cosmic picture of God creating the world, the scale of it all. Wow, isn't God an amazing creator? Now in Genesis 2, we begin to zoom in with more detail. Mike read for us verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. No shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. It's just a bare wasteland, barren, bare earth. 
For the Lord God had not sent rain on the ground and there was no one to work the ground. In these couple of verses, there are two things that are lacking, right? Number one, there's no water. God hasn't sent any rain, so there's no plants. And number two, there's no one to work the ground. Two things are lacking. But in our next verses, verses 6 and 7, it's those two things that are then dealt with. So verse 6, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The water problems dealt with. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living, living being. No water, so God brings up water from the deep. No one to work the ground, so God creates the man. This is it. This is the creation of humans. This is the moment. This is the, this is the answer to why God made us. There was no one to work the ground. There's a job to be done. Our purpose, the reason we're created, the, the purpose of our lives is to work. Uh, there's no cheer. No, you might be thinking, seriously, I mean, life is all about work? I mean, maybe that atheist idea isn't so depressing after all. I mean, let's be honest, when we think of work, we think about our jobs often, and lots of us probably work longer hours than we want to. Work takes away from family time, from relaxation. And I know over the past couple of decades, work has just sort of crept and crept and crept and crept, and the hours are longer and longer, and the pressure has ramped up and up, and the employees aren't valued like they used to be anymore. Uh, we have mobile phones that mean we never truly escape, and our to-do lists are getting longer and longer, and because of COVID, lines are now blurred between work and home, and and then you come to church and you hear that life is all about work. That is, that is not what we want to hear, is it? Well, what we're going to see here, though, is Genesis 2's picture of work. Because it's Genesis 2, it does talk about work, but it's work as it was meant to be. This is, this is work, but not as you know it. The perfect picture, an ideal picture of what work is meant to be like. And I want to uh, point out to us three quick things about this ideal uh, picture of work. The first thing is that work is all about bringing order to God's world. Uh, did you notice in the passage God created Adam to work the land, but Adam actually, he wasn't given the barren land to work. He's given the role of looking after God's garden. We'll see that in verse 8. Uh, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The man's in the garden. The Lord God made all kinds of trees go out of the garden, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm sure some of us here are into gardening. Uh, Annika and I have been redoing our backyard for the last year or so. Here's a picture for you. It's looking really good. Don't, don't be too impressed. Uh, I'm sure it'll look a bit nicer as the plants grow. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but I tell you, I've, I've grown in appreciation for how good a really good garden can be. The, the order, the careful positioning of the plants, the everything looking nice and maintained, remembering what the right time of year to fertilise and prune is and all that sort of stuff. There's a lot of order. Let's get rid of that. Uh, it's no coincidence, I think, that God is pictured as a gardener. This is the God who took a world of chaos and carefully designed it into a world of order. Got everything just right. This is ultimately what true work is all about, maintaining God's orderly creation, keeping things running as they should be, taking the chaos and bringing about order. And as we work jobs like this, we reflect the creator and what we were made to do. So that means we, we are talking about work today, but we're talking about 
the Bible's perfect original design for work. And so we're not just talking about paid employment because we're talking about anything that helps bring order to God's world. So of course that, of course that includes relational work, things like caring for others, caring for kids, grandparents, caring for grandchildren, caring for an aging or struggling friend or family member, just even being a good friend to someone else or a spouse or a support person and looking after one another. It also includes domestic work, things like like tidying the house and mowing the lawn and looking after your little part of God's creation. That is part of work as it's intended to be. This includes volunteering, uh, studying, don't forget our our students, learning about how to bring order to God's creation. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about work. All these things, really almost all the different things we spend our time on during the week, are part of taking part in what we were made to do, bringing order to God's world. That does, of course, include lots of our jobs as well, things like you know, a hairdresser brings order, the engineer uh, designs things to make people's lives easier, brings order. Uh, the artist or designer who reflects something of the beauty of God's creativity, the, the landscaper, probably closest of all to God's original design, the gardener bringing order, the retail worker ensuring people get the things they need in an orderly way, the lawyer working for justice and fairness, the, the teacher, the lecturer helping train people in how to live in God's world. Uh, if, if I didn't mention your job or your work, uh, what I would encourage you to do is on the, on the drive home today, why don't you have a think about how your job helps bring order and maintain order in God's orderly world. There is great value in what we do as we reflect our Creator and undertake the task we were put here for. Something else too you could think about on your way home, our, our growth groups will also get to think about this during the week. Does this mean there are jobs that Christians shouldn't do? Are, are there jobs that actually don't tick that box of bringing order in some way to the world and maintaining order? Maybe because actually they're jobs that work against order and work against things being as they should be. Jobs that actually just sow more chaos and more evil. Good question to ask, I think. Uh, that, that's all the first thing I wanted, wanted us to notice about God's perfect picture of work in Genesis 2, that it's all about bringing order. And the second thing I think that's really clear in Genesis 2 is that this perfect picture of work, there's no, it's not burdensome, it's not a difficult, burdensome thing. We think of work and we think, actually, you know, this is, this is burdensome, I don't necessarily love this, but it's not how work was meant to be, it's not how work is in Genesis chapter 2. Did you see how the workplace that God puts Adam in is so beautiful? It's full of great trees, it's pleasing to the eye, there's plenty of food. Uh, take a look at verses 15 and 16. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Adam's job is to take care of the garden, but this isn't you know, company property where he's expected to keep his hands off. He's free to eat whatever he wants. It's like the company offering you a job and not only do they pay you a salary, they also let you have your fair share in the company's profits. This is not a burdensome job. This is good, satisfying work, full of benefits and joys. He's not extorted. He's not asked to work long hours even though he's only paid for nine to five. It's Adam beautifully fulfilling the role that his creator gave him. It's not until... Next week, we will come back to Genesis 3 next week, that 
the struggles and the brokenness of work suddenly come into play. In Genesis 3, work becomes painful. It becomes a toil. The ground suddenly has thorns and thistles. Suddenly Adam has to get sweaty to make ends meet. But not in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, work is a blissful joy. The picture of work in Genesis 2, it's all about bringing order. It's not a burden in any way. It's a really enjoyable task to be a part of. And also, it's also in the context of perfect relationship. You know, I think this is true. I think in some ways the most important thing about a job, and whether you like that job or not, is the people, right? Your boss, whether you have a good boss or not, your co-workers. Uh, I remember one of my bosses when I was working as an engineer. Um, he only had his had his job because of a personal connection with the CEO of the company, and everyone knew that was the case. So uh, he was deeply insecure because he didn't want people to think that he had his job only because of connections. He wanted people to think he had his job on merit, and so he didn't like being questioned. He was constantly trying to prove himself. He wasn't a great person to work for. But work in Genesis 2, it's not like that at all. There's no insecurity. Adam has a perfect relationship with God, his boss, his creator. There's no need to prove anything. They, they enjoy intimacy and relationship in the garden. And Adam has a perfect relationship with Eve, his wife and co-worker. Eve is different to Adam, equal but different, created to be his helper. They work together to look after God's creation in perfect unison. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. There's no need to prove anything to each other. They're both naked and yet they feel no shame. This is God's perfect picture of work. Working naked. Not really, no. It's, this is the perfect picture of work. It's in Genesis 2. It's what we were put on this earth for. Bringing and maintaining order in his creation. Working that's not in a way that's burdensome or frustrating. That's a task that we carry out in perfect, secure relationship with God and with one another. It's a pretty amazing picture of what work's meant to be, isn't it? Who are we? We're God's special creation. Why are we here? To work God's creation in a perfect way. Our third point then, given who we are, given why we're here, how then should we live? How do we live knowing that actually we don't live back in Genesis 2 with Adam and Eve in this perfect picture of work? We live this side of the fall. What preachers often do when they get to Genesis 2 is uh, we tend to use Genesis 2 as a jumping off point. So we do a sermon on work, we do a sermon on marriage, and that's done. Easy. Great. I do think those, the text has things to say about both work and marriage, but I actually think the big thing here for us to take away is actually this chapter just makes us feel sad. The chapter makes us feel sad because it reminds us of what we've lost. God's design for his people, the reason he's put us here was so wonderful. His picture of work was so beautiful, how things were meant to be. And yet, as we live in this world, our work is frustrating. (coughs) Our relationships are broken. What we work for doesn't last. The garden's quickly overtaken by weeds. The software you design is quickly outdated. The house you build won't last forever. The person you care for won't be there forever. We're insecure, always feeling like we're not enough. No wonder our society seems to struggle to know where to look for, for meaning. I think the big thing for us is to look back at Genesis 2 and be sad that this is what we've lost. This is how things were meant 
to be. It's so far away from what we experience now. And yet we have lost much, but there are still things we can do to still as much as we can live in a way that reflects God's original design for humanity. We can still live somewhat in a way that lines up with what we were made for. We can live in a way also that points others back to the Bible's answer of where meaning comes from. And we do have that really by remember we do that by remembering what we still have, because we still have a lot. At least we have this picture of how things were meant to be. At least we don't despair because we know how things were meant to be. We know why things are the way they are today. And more than that, if we know Jesus, we know that as we're with him, one day we'll be with him when things are put right. So we also have hope. And more again, if we know Jesus, well, that means that in Jesus we have a restored relationship with God. We know God and are known by him. We have a secure relationship with him again, just like Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 2. And that means we don't have to work to prove ourselves or justify ourselves or prove that we're good enough to God. In Jesus, we're known by God, we're loved by God. Do you know that in many ways, when you go into the office, into school, uh, when you look after your kids, your grandkids, your parents, did you know that in many ways your boss is God? It's his world. You're still helping to bring order to his world. You're looking after people that he knows and loves. And as you work in relationship with him, you bring him great glory. Living and working as things were intended. And yeah, our work might not last, and, uh, but the glory that we bring God, well, that, that lasts for sure. The glory that we bring to God's name. So our work is still a noble thing. And our work is still painful. There are thorns and thistles to deal with, metaphorically, or literally if you're a gardener. Sometimes the paycheck is the only reason we can find to get up and go to work in the morning. But did you know in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, he gives instructions to slaves. Uh, and don't believe anyone who tells you that Paul condones slavery, because that's just not true at all. But what he did say was that even slaves can bring glory to God as they go about their work. You know, even slavery, that's got to be the ultimate expression of the brokenness of work, of how far away from God's original design work is. But even slaves could still work as if working for the Lord and bring glory and honour to him, which certainly means we can too. What does it look like when we're working as people who know God and we're working for God's glory? Well, it is going to actually make a big difference to our day-to-day, isn't it? When the boss is away and everyone's just slacking off, well, We're not working to justify ourselves or prove ourselves to our boss anyway, are we? We're working to the glory of God. No excuse to slack off while the boss is away. No excuse for me then with Cameron out on holidays. But it works the other way too. When work's crazy and no one's taking a break, we might actually be the ones that work slightly less hard because we're working for God's glory. Well, neglecting our family and our rest just for a job isn't bringing glory to God, is it? When we're volunteering, we might be the one who spends time with that difficult person that no one else wants to care for, helping them because we're motivated not by self-fulfillment, we're motivated by God's glory. When we're having a really difficult week with the kids, well, knowing Jesus uh, doesn't make work not broken, there are still difficult weeks, but it's nice to know that you're not in it alone, that we have a heavenly Father who knows us and loves us and values the noble work that we're doing and cares for our children as well. 
One more piece of application that I just want to talk about before we finish. Uh, this one's been going around my head a bit this week as well, but I think it checks out. I'd be interested to know if this makes sense, so uh, let me try and explain it. Uh, a couple of thousand years after this picture in Genesis 1, uh, later on in the Bible in Exodus, in the second half of Exodus, uh, the Israelites, they build the tabernacle, uh, which would later become the temple. It's the place where they meet with God. Uh, Genesis, interestingly, was probably written about the time when they were building the tabernacle. Uh, the tabernacle was filled with imagery that pointed the Israelites back to those first two chapters of Genesis. The tabernacle of the temple, it was full of imagery, of images of different things that showed the Israelites that the temple, the tabernacle, it was like a little slice of the world as God intended it. It was like a little garden of Eden that they could carry around with them. As they went to the temple, it was meant to point them back to how things were. It was meant to point them forward to how things would one day be again. And if you then trace the idea of temple through the Bible and we come to the New Testament, we come to Jesus, who called his own body the temple. So that means that Jesus, he was a little piece of the world as it was intended to be. And in his resurrection, he was a little piece of the world to come. But what's most interesting is then, uh, as you keep going through the New Testament and you get to the letters and people like Paul, suddenly then the church is described as God's temple. What does that mean? That means that like Jesus, like the temple, like the tabernacle, that means the church too, it's meant to be like a little piece of the world as God intended it to be. Like a little slice of the new eternal kingdom that Jesus will one day bring about. Of course, we're a church here. We still live in the broken world. We're still broken people. But as we participate in building his church, unlike most of the other work we do during the week, we are actually building something that will last into the next life. We're a little slice of the next life already here. And all of our work brings glory to God, of course, so all work has eternal value, I think, but working for Jesus' church and for Jesus' kingdom, that is actually work that truly lasts forever. This is a bit shameless, isn't it? But have a think about our serving survey. All I want to say is that I hope you don't think that doing something like serving in kids' church or welcoming people at the door is just filling a roster. As we work to build up God's church, we're playing our little part in building God's kingdom, working for things that last. Of course, it's much more than Sunday rosters, of course. It's encouraging others in the faith. It's evangelism. It's growing in your own love. For Jesus, it's giving up your lunch break to run a prayer group. It's making the effort to get to Bible study and encourage others. It's putting aside time to pray. All of these things are working for Jesus' kingdom. And working for Jesus' kingdom is about as close as we can get to doing exactly what we were put here on earth to do. This perfect picture of what humanity was created for in Genesis chapter 2. So, do our lives have any meaning? Are human lives worth any more than the lives of slime mould? I think everyone knows deep down the answer is yes, don't they? But in the Bible, we know why. It's because of who we are. We're God's special creation. It's because of why we're here. We're created by him to work and enjoy his creation with him. And knowing that, we know that in Jesus, we can once again know our creator we can still work for our Creator and we can work for the kingdom which will last forever.
Now to finish, I just want to read again the quote we had at the start. Remember the Charlotte Gray book? I'm trying to make sense if there's any real meaning to our lives as well, at all when things go well for some and terribly for others. I did you a bit of a disservice before. I only read the first half of the quote. I'm going to read the whole thing now. It says, No child knows the world he is entering and at the moment of his birth he is a stranger to his parents. When he dies many years later, there may be regrets about those left behind that they never knew him better. But he is forgotten almost as soon as he dies because there is no time for others to puzzle out his life. After a few years, he will be referred to once or twice by a grandchild, then by no one at all. Unknown at the moment of birth, unknown after death, this weight of solitude, of being unknown. And yet, if I believe in God, I am known. God will know me, even as I cannot know myself. If he created me, then he has lived with me. He knows the nature of my temptations and the manner of my failing. So I'm not alone. I have for my companion the creator of the world. At the hour of my death, I would wish to be known unto God. Unto that, we say, Amen.